0: Hello and welcome to the Life is Story podcast. I'm Josh Olds and today my guest is D.L. Mayfield, the author of The Myth of the American Dream. Uh, So Danielle, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Now I always start out with this question because not all of my listeners are familiar with the author that I'm talking to or the book and I want them so much to become familiar Uh, With those things, Uh, who is D.L. Mayfield and what is the myth of the American dream?
1: Oh, okay. Well, um, yeah, so I write as D.L. Mayfield, but uh, my name is Danielle and I am someone who lives on the outskirts of Portland, Oregon, and I teach English to speakers of other languages. I've lived in refugee and immigrant communities in the U.S. for about 14 years now, and it's totally rocked my world. And um yeah, I, I so I've written two books now, the second of which is The Myth of the American Dream, Reflections on Affluence, Autonomy, Safety and Power. And it's really just a collection of essays where I am trying to understand how strong the values of the American dream have shaped my life and how powerful they are mm-hmm. and how contradictory they seem to um the values of Jesus in the gospels. And so Really, it's a book of wrestling and questions and uh, trying to pay attention to inequality in my own neighborhood and then sort of, um, you know, broaden it out from there. It sounds kind of depressing when I say it like that, but I really am trying to be curious and pay attention and um, I, I don't know, hopefully it doesn't come across as like, I'm telling you what to do, but I'm just trying to invite other people into, yeah, asking some questions. About mm-hmm. *The Mrs of American Dream*, which is an interesting book to have right now, during a global pandemic and all of these like <laughs> protests about a history of racial violence in the United States. Like it's it's a wild time, but I think most people are really yeah, we know, we get it.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think this book came out at a providential time uh, because the things that you talk about in this book are they've always been under the surface. Of the American life Uh, and when I say under the surface I mean for white evangelicals Uh, they are fully on the surface and evident to any minority community uh, in in the United States but by and large white evangelicals can sort of overlook these things and we've we've been faced with reality uh, these past couple of months and this book sort of shows us that this isn't about George Floyd only. This is about a whole history and system of inequality. And when we stand up to protest that inequality, then we are protesting not just an incident, but a system. And your book really shows us, I think, hopefully, how to not just react to a certain incident but how to react chronically how to react long term and how to really live with this with these issues so I, I really want to thank you um, for your work and for how much of yourself that you put uh, into this book this isn't this isn't just a book about here's what you should do uh, but this is a book about here's how I have lived and I, I found that so refreshing
1: thank you and thank you for uh, bringing up the point that You know, the myth of the American dream is only a myth for people who have chosen to believe in it. And you're exactly right that for anybody who's experienced, you know, the historic oppression baked into the United States, you know, they've known (laughs) this whole time and have been trying to tell us So thank you for pointing that out. I think that's really important.
0: Now, this was I mean, this has been a personal journey for you because I don't think that what I gathered from the book is that you didn't necessarily grow up in this environment, uh, so tell me about your childhood and your upbringing and how you got to where you are now.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, taking a, a big step back and looking at this second book, I, I would say in some ways it's a book of me trying to grapple with the fact that I was raised very Christian. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I'm a pastor's kid. I was homeschooled. I went to Bible college a missionary, so totally ensconced in this very conservative, Christian, white, evangelical world, and, you know, living in my neighborhoods, having experiences that I've had, I I slowly started to realize that my religious community did not give me an adequate framework for the common good, for how do I live my life with the common good in my mind, how do I love my neighbor as myself, and in particular, the neighbor that is most at risk in my community, and I think that's like a huge scriptural theme. And then to see how people like white American evangelicals in particular, we don't have the language to live our lives like that. We truly have these values of I need to do what's best for me and my family. You know, when it comes to mortgages, when it comes to school choice, when it comes to all these things, I really have seen how these values actually clash with what, uh, you know, the scriptures are asking us to do. And I think that's why it's important, you know, you mentioned, not just, like, getting on board with, like, activism or or one specific thing happening. This book is really me saying, like, we have to look at these values that drive our lives, or else we're just going to keep repeating these mistakes. And I think what truly happened in a a country like America, which is unequal, and it is unjust, and it has been from the beginning, and, um, you know, before uh, COVID-19, we really were on track as far as, like, income inequality levels. You know, we're moving towards the next Gilded Age as far as, like, extreme inequality, wealth inequality in the U.S.
2: Mm -hmm. And,
1: like, if we don't take that seriously, then people who do come from privileged backgrounds, like, when we choose what's best for us and our own, like, we just further that inequality and we actually harm the common good. You know, I live in a neighborhood, right, in Portland, and and most cities are like this, where if someone is working full-time at a minimum wage job, like, they cannot pay their rent. They cannot pay their rent. Right. And so what does that mean for me? That means like something is fundamentally wrong here and we're just seeing it everywhere right now in the U S right. We don't have, we don't have the funds to give people healthcare when we really need it right now. Like we don't have the funds to help people pay their rent when they can't work for fear of dying. Like it's such a huge mess. And I think as a Christian, I need to recognize, like, I have a responsibility to the common good, to all of my neighbors flourishing. And that is something that comes from the heart of God, this desire to see everybody flourish, not just me and not just my own. And so the book really was trying to say, like, I'm confused. This is a scriptural thing. Why wasn't I taught that? And it's a a sticky question to try and unravel.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think that I – I in, in my review of the book and I'll be sharing a, a link along with this with this podcast when it is published I said that above all I don't know that your book changed any of my thoughts because I was already there but it made me feel like here's someone else who understands like here here's someone else who has who has gone through what I've gone through and um, Pretty similar upbringing within, you know, fully entrenched within conservative evangelical Christianity, homeschooled, and when I when I really began to study Scripture and what Jesus was saying and the themes of the Old Testament prophets, I'm just looking around, going, "That's not what our church is doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're we're not we're not doing that." And I I didn't I, I still don't know. I haven't found an answer to it other than that um we've just sort of co-opted Christ for our own purposes. And I, I guess that's probably the the correct answer, but it's I don't know that's one that I'm I'm it's not one that I want to put on the church, but I think it's probably the right one. Um for me, as I started to make this shift, I don't think my theology changed so much as the emphases of my theology changed. Because if you asked me, should we help the poor, I would have said yes. Um I may have had a different method of doing that, I may have had a different method of defining the poor, but all of a sudden my emphases start to shift and I look around and my social group and my family group, my church group, all those areas of support, they're no longer in the same place that I am. Did you find that as you started to engage in these areas of activism and justice?
1: Oh yeah, I think fundamentally what what changed for me cuz again I grew up wanting to be a missionary so I wanted to help mm. people and um recognizing that again the framework I've been given within uh, evangelicalism was one of charity right and so mm. we help the poor because we have more than we need um but we never asked the question why are people poor you know why are people poor in my city why are people poor Globally, and we really didn't engage in a systemic framework. And so, the first part of my book is looking at this value of affluence, and I thought it was a really important value to start off with because it's a great way to invite people like myself who did not grow up with an ability to engage in systems to instead, you know, shift the conversation from like somebody's poor because they made a bad choice, which is how I was raised to think of it, Mm -hmm. to there's these entire systems at play that actually hoard wealth for some and then keep other people from wealth. And it's very systematic. And in the United States, it's actually all based upon race and gender and, and class. And so I think we have to really dig into the history, dig into these systems, and then start to say, like, I don't think God wants anybody to be poor, so how do we engage in that? And what's cool is going back and especially looking at – um You know, the Hebrew scriptures, there's so much about why people are poor and how we can, you know, create more just societies where we actually prioritize the most marginalized. So the, the Hebrew scriptures always talk about, you know, the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner, and why we have to always keep them in our minds when we're making these decisions and we're making society, because those were the ones that were most at risk in the kind of, uh, you know, economic systems they had back then. Just like, mm. oh my gosh, this is a part of our heritage. Why can't, why can't we as Christians like be claiming this, that this is our heritage economic system that actually prioritizes the marginalized? And instead, what we have is Christian financial gurus who who literally say all the time, like, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. You know, I'm like, how is that? A biblical <laughs> response and yet that's something that is just baked into sort of this privileged American dream mythology mm-hmm.
0: There, there's a, this idea that this is America everyone's free you can get ahead if you just work hard enough and that especially in a white evangelicals mindset is I, I think there's a lot of well if I can do it then other people can do it I know that I had yeah. that I, I, I come from that background Um, you know, and I, I kind of felt the same way, uh, for a long time, you know, I paid off my student loans. So why should there be forgiveness for, you know, these people? And I've, I've had to change my mind on that because I'm like, Hey, the whole purpose here is to make society better. And if we are just dealing, like if if we leave these people only to deal with this, this crushing poverty, um, then they can't it's harder for them to be the people who God has created them to be. Um, and we have to it, its it's two things it's it's generosity but it goes beyond that because we can be very generous and not change systems. Right. So starting with the systems and this is you know I'm, I'm asking I'm asking you to answer an impossible question um, but I guess really just where do we where do we start?
1: Yeah, I think you just you just gave a great example, right? You worked hard, you paid off your student loans. I'm sure it wasn't easy for you, and you know, for a while, it's sort of like, yeah, why should there be loan forgiveness for everybody else? I worked hard, I did it. Now your your viewpoint has changed, and I'm assuming that's because you've been able to listen to stories of people who are not able to make it in this economic system that we have set up in the United States right now. And that's what happened for me. So what happens is we need to have this sort of shift and framework where we ask for god's dream for the world you know to become our dream and i think what you see in the scriptures over and over again is like when the most marginalized flourish we will all flourish we actually all will be better for it and i hear i hear you saying that even in this little example of student loans it's like when we experience like when other people experience jubilee or debt forgiveness liberation. Like we truly all will be liberated. But what's interesting, this is a theme in scriptures too, is that, you know, Jesus was good news, right, for certain groups of people. And for other groups of people, he was perceived as extremely threatening. And that's very important for us to pay attention to. So for me, as someone who loves creative writing, I love thinking about the design, I love thinking about these, that's where I like to start. It's like Freedom and liberation sounds great, but the truth is it can feel like oppression to people who have benefited from systems that exploit other people, right? And so looking at Jesus, um, you know, people tried to kill Jesus multiple times in the scriptures, and it was always the religious leaders, the people who had a lot to lose if suddenly everybody was in and everybody was God's child and everybody was loved by God. You know, they'd spent their whole life trying to be like, no, we get it more than others, and we have more access to God. And, I, and I, I see the same thing happening, you know, in my own heart, in our own communities, is a lot of us work so hard to get where we are, and then I just feel like, oh my gosh, not everybody gets it, or I might be asked to give something up. Um, and we need to pay attention to that. And, you know, looking to the long picture, we know that in the end, true shalom, true justice, true flourishing is going to be best for all. Does that mean we uh, need to give up some things here now? I think it does. You know, I talk a lot in the book about um, like school choice and thinking through how individualistic that has become for people who have choice, you know, to choose what is best for you and your kid. And it might mean more of us need to make a decision based with our entire community at mind. And I truly don't think we're going to give up a lot, but the narrative is like, oh my gosh, this kid is not going to get the best education possible. And it's like, well, maybe scholastically, but what kind of education are they going to get in learning to love their neighbors? It's going to be awesome. So we just need to shift our mindset from what are we going to have to give up to what are we going to gain? And I think that's, I think that's a shift. I hear you saying that you've, You've actually undertaken yourself. Do you think that's
2: mm-hmm. yeah,
1: true
0: that's, for you? That, that's, oh, it's super,
1: yeah. Um, so,
0: in my life, um, I, <laughs> right in the middle of this pandemic, about a month and a half ago, then my wife and I, we both quit our jobs and we moved across the country. And we are currently uh, living at a friend's house and we are just waiting on what God has for us next. Uh, my wife's position is a, um, allows her to travel. Uh, right now, it's all uh, work from home. So we, in the middle of all this uncertainty, we had already planned this before coronavirus, and um, we just removed all stability in our life whatsoever and just stepped out on faith and said, okay, God, we knew you were calling us to do this even before the world got crazy. To do this crazy thing. And we're going to keep doing it. We're going to continue to do it anyway. And we gave away about 90% of everything that we owned. And we we have enough possessions that could fill our two cars. And that includes our two children and, and their things as well. And that's how we're going to live the next couple of years. Just to see where God takes us in the world. And it has been... It, it's been interesting. It's been interesting. And I don't know that we've really achieved it yet because we're still really within sort of these social safety nets and that we're living at a friend's house. We're about an hour away from my parents. Uh, but eventually, and these, you know, these are the conversations that we've been having over the course of the last you know three or four weeks as we look toward what comes after this is how crazy, how crazy do we get? Um, how how extreme do we go? Where is God going to take us? And we're, right now, we're just kind of willing to be be open uh, to everything. One thing wow. we did at, at the start of this year is we really had this um, we we had this feeling that we wanted to love our neighbor as ourselves, and so we started with our food budget. And every month, whatever it is that we have spent on food, whether that's restaurants or grocery we have been giving that to various uh, organizations that work to combat hunger, um, whether globally or locally. And that has been I uh, just really I haven't missed that money, you know? I haven't yeah. I haven't missed it. And I thought I was going to and I wasn't sure I wanted to do it. And I don't I still when I when I whenever we get ready to like click the button to send the money I still have that sense of like uh, I don't know, and you know, in in seven months now I've not missed that money whatsoever, and it has been incredible to me because I never would have considered myself to be affluent, but I must be, you know, yeah, I mu- I must be, and I guess I, I've kind of gotten off track, but and here's here's a question I I want to ask you. Because this is kind of where I've been wrestling, what I've been wrestling with, um, over the past year or so, is how much is too much. Do you do you have guidelines for yourself on how much money you live off of, or what you allow for entertainment uh, and luxuries?
1: Yeah, I think this is a. I think this is a really big question. I think you just gave a really cool example of how we can actually be creative in thinking through how we want to view money. That's a really awesome idea. Like, and for one, you are having to pay attention to how much money you're spending, right, on Correct, food yeah. and stuff, and then you are, you know, forcing yourself to give um, out of your abundance, and maybe not even out of your abundance, but actually just like out of your what you're using so for me uh our finances fluctuated so much over mm. the past decade it's unreal and so we don't like have a set budget that we live at or under but for me <clears throat> the thing that's been so impactful is living in a neighborhood where most people are in poverty you know my daughter attending a school where 94 of the people live below the poverty line i feel like that just naturally changes how I view money and how I view spending. And so I feel like my neighbors are the constraint right upon my life and it helps me to have a more accurate grasp of how people are living. Um, and so, yeah, I, I want to continue to be more generous. I would say that I really struggle with, um, Generosity, and I and I think I still have a really huge scarcity mindset when it comes to money. Mm-hmm. I'm really afraid of losing all the money I have because I live in America. You know, if I have one terrible thing happen to me health wise, right? Right. <laughs> I yeah. be bankrupt. Yeah. Yeah. That's just that's how most people live. That's how I live. Um, but for me, I I think it's really important to you know have a more biblical perception of money, and I write about this in the book. And you know, the Bible says so much about money and wealth. And there's some conflicting stuff in there. One thing is that wealth is a blessing from God and we need to express our gratitude for it. And that's really hard for me, right? I feel a little bit ashamed of money. I feel ashamed that my husband's a therapist and he makes a decent living, you know. Um, but I need to express gratitude. If we, if I don't express gratitude, then I'm going to continue to hoard it or feel shame and, and all that. And that's that's not good. And then the other thing the Bible really talks about a lot, these are like the two main things, is that wealth makes us forget the poor. Mm-hmm. So we have to hold those things in tension at all times. It's a blessing from God. It can make us forget about the poor. So we have to we have to view it as a both-and, you know? And so yeah. for me, it's just important to uh, be in conversation with people mm-hmm. about money, to have more uh, frank discussions about money. You know, I write in the book about doing a little group with some of our friends where we actually talked about our money and how we want to spend and how we want to be more generous because you have to be strategic about being generous but again some of these discussions kind of stem back to that individualistic thing which i don't think is bad but we do need to keep having this conversation of and why is it so hard for us to be generous um is it because we live in a consumeristic capitalistic society you know where we can never quite get ahead i want to keep both of those conversations in tension what do what i do with my money is important but what's what's also extremely important is changing the system to prioritize people over capital. And Mm -hmm. I, and I think we're seeing the need for that right now.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. You have, you've brought up this issue of autonomy a, a few different times, and that is the next section in your book. And you wrote this book again before COVID before the pandemic, but the conversation on autonomy really has taken on a new facet uh, in American life mm-hmm. um, and how we have dealt with this pandemic and my belief and why we are still dealing with it in the way that we are, because we are such an individualistic society. Yeah. How yeah, do we... I, mean... I, don't, I, I, I don't even know how to start... To to try to especially because there's such a reaction to any sort of collectivism, any like any sort of idea of a social structure or social justice, all immediately brings up these accusations of socialism, communism. The idea of individualism is so entrenched in, in American life that it becomes very difficult for us to have empathy for the needs of other people when we, when we can't even begin to have this conversation because of the extremes that immediately gets taken to, where do we even begin?
1: Yeah. I think for me, it's like, it's just horrifying to read the news headlines and to see, you know, I I would say the values of both affluence and, you know, our our economic system must keep going at all costs and autonomy. Like it's a deadly concoction. It's literally deadly as we are seeing. The United States is now the leader in, you know, deaths from COVID-19 and it's just going to, it's just going to climb. And so when I see the headlines, when I see people, you know, refusing to wear a mask because of their right to personal liberty, you know, I'm just like this. We live in Pharaoh's world. We're living in Pharaoh's Egypt, you know, from Hebrew scriptures. And Pharaoh said, like, we must keep building at all costs. You know, we must keep moving forward at all costs. And, you know, those who don't make it, they were the weak and the infirm anyways, you know. And it's just like, wow, that is the opposite of God's dream for the world. And I think you're exactly right. I've been really privileged to live in these neighborhoods with refugees and immigrants who come from collectivist cultures. And just seeing, like, oh my gosh, they are so much better equipped to handle a global pandemic. It's not even funny. And so, the first step, right, for people who are kind of entrenched in these ideas of American superiority, is to say, like, let's look at the countries who are doing this better. Uh, all of them have a collectivist, socialist, you know, bent to mm-hmm. them, and uh, it's it's really helping their their societies.
2: Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. And that that, of course, brings up the issue of safety. Um, which, which I, I find this, there's, there's almost this like paradox here in that it's our individualism that is keeping us from being safe and yet, and yet we still place a very high value on our safety, uh, that is, you know, especially white people. Um, and that is, I, I, I think a large contingent of the audience of this podcast, uh, white Christians. So we're talking directly to you. Um, we we tend, and I'll say we, we like to live, say safe, in safety, and everyone does. Everyone does. Um, mm-hmm. But the more the more affluent you are, the greater the ability you have to create that safety, and to to also whether it's safe or not you may have developed ideas in your mind of what isn't safe, uh, whether that's the case or not. Like, oh, it's not safe in this particular neighborhood. Um, I feel safe when I am the majority culture. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's it's not necessarily so much about physical safety, but it's almost like emotional safety. Uh, Mm -hmm. We want to live where we feel comfortable. Um, white people aren't used to being in the minority, and one thing that you've done, you said you've, you've lived in minority communities, you have lived in uh, refugee communities. Did you have any difficulty adjusting initially to that, and, and how are you with it now?
1: I think in the beginning it was just really exciting and really fun, um, and, you know, I'm someone who does enjoy other cultures, and I don't think I'd live in neighborhoods like this if I didn't enjoy it in some respects. However, um, truly being the minority somewhere is difficult and so I've had to become comfortable with difficulty. I've had to really deal with my own white fragility and the Mm -hmm. limitations I have Um, and so that's you know ultimately ultimately it's all a gift. It's just all a gift. Um, Right now during COVID-19 I'm not able to really engage with my neighbors very much at all. It's been very difficult and sort of like a sliver of a gift of this is like I'm still being forced to reckon with the fact that I still have a lot of like savior complex impulses, right? Like
2: mm-hmm. I'm
1: only a valuable person if I'm helping my neighbors, you know, and I'm not able to do that right now. And am I still loved and valued by God? And am I still using my neighbors to feel better about myself? I'm, I'm having to deal with all that right now. But I will say when I wrote the safety section of the book, I was really looking at, how people who are privileged, you know, sort of have a warped sense of safety, right, and what constitutes safety. And I was really looking at how the conversation has devolved around immigration and refugees in particular, because obviously that's really important to me and a community I've worked with for a long time now, of how immigrants, you know, historically have been vilified in public discourse. And, you know, Donald Trump and his 2016 election, like, most people voted for him, you know, in a large part due to his immigration policies, right? They want to build the wall. They want to keep out immigrants who are not Eurocentric. They they want the refugee resettlement program to end. And in, in large part, that's happened. Like, my life is drastically changed. Like, I have my master's degree in teaching English to speakers of other languages, and I specialize in teaching non- or preliterate communities, so they're mostly women- who were too poor, experienced some kind of mm-hmm. trauma in their own country, and they never learned to read or write, and um, that's what I've done. And now there's nobody coming, right? And this right. is even before the pandemic. There's nobody new coming. It's over. And even if for some reason Trump decided to let a bunch of refugees in, there's no infrastructure now to support them. And it's like, wow, they they really did it. The the you know this historic human rights amazing refugee resettlement program has been decimated for the next 10 years, I would say at least. Mm. And so it's sort of a kind of grapple with that grief and how us saying like, we want to be safe, America first, you know, only focus on us. Like this has such dire and drastic consequences that I don't think people are really acknowledging. Um, and so that's, that's truly what I was focusing on in this section, but you're right now we're in this like very bizarre time like we're actually seeing that people value I would say affluence and autonomy over public safety at this point, right? right it's just right, yeah. it's just a wild time.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um you have you have two young kids. Um I don't know exact ages of I I think young. How do you I have two young kids. How do you balance the desire to like you have to be a parent? but also you want to place yourself into these situations of instability and uncertainty. How do you keep your kids safe and make sure that their needs are taken care of while also still going out and advocating on behalf of the most vulnerable?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think our neighborhood is really safe because we know everybody. You know, sometimes I drive through like a more affluent suburb, and I'm just like, it's so creepy. Do people even know their neighbors? (laughs) You know, like, everybody knows us. We know Mm -hmm. them. We watch out for each other. It's, like, an incredibly safe place to live. I think this question has come up more for me with, you know, regards to schooling. Mm -hmm. Um, I have, like, a 9-year-old and a 5-year-old, and um, one of my children is, like, super highly gifted and, you know, has all this other stuff that maybe would make a chaotic classroom not super great but you know honestly it's been it's been going amazing and i'm actually this moment today i'm really grieving the fact that we probably will not have in-person school this fall and uh, you know our is like the, our hub of community and and i mm-hmm. actually am going to have to like homeschool my <laughs> children which i swore i would never do after being homeschooled myself um but yeah i think we have to you know It's not like I don't care about my kids and their safety at all. That's not true. But I'm just trying to, you know, branch out a little bit and say, as I'm thinking about what's best for my kids, I need to keep in mind my neighbors. And so going back to the school thing, I don't really want to tell people what to do. I mean, that's not true. I I do think most people (laughs) should. (laughs) And we need to engage with the fact that we have an incredibly segregated and unequal school system in the United States, and that's on purpose and... And we need to wrestle with that. But, you know, really what I just want us to be able to ask is instead of just saying what's best for my child, you know, let's ask him, let's ask some other questions. Like, you know, somebody's kids, right, have to go to the worst school in your city. So, like, in your mind, who's, whose kid should that be? The truth is, like, the worst school in the sh- city should be good enough for your child, right, or else there's something fundamentally wrong. So therefore, we need to engage in these issues to make it good for everybody. And what instead happens is when we focus on our own, we, we totally opt out of these discussions of the common good. And that's what I want to see change. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean you neglect your own kids, but you have to really do the work to enter into these larger frameworks. What's going to be best for all of God's children, not mm-hmm. just my own?
0: Yeah, I, I remember it's been... Oh, probably a year and a half ago, that the the city that I was living in at the time, the the county jail was being used as an ICE detention center for refugees. And usually, when the the refugees had been processed and they were released uh, to they were released to be wait on their court date, then it was in the middle of the afternoon. But for for whatever reason, and and who knows why, I'm sure no good reason. Um, they had a group of people who were released around midnight. And so we got a phone call that was like, hey, uh, no one can come out and help these people get to the airport or get to the bus station. And, you know, they're just sent – they're just, okay, here you go. You know, now you're outside of the outside of the jail with no – with nothing. Um, good luck getting to your next destination. So a, a group of us had gone down to, to make sure that all their paperwork was – correct uh, That they had been given everything that they needed that they knew they were in contact with their lawyers and that they were getting to their next destination to wherever it is that they were going to to be staying at until their their court date and um so you know my wife and i were just like okay so we, we put our kid in the car he's like one year old at the time and you know we just went down to the jail and hung out in front of the jail and um and waited for this group of about a dozen refugees to be processed and released. And, you know, I'm telling friends about it and they're like, oh, you know, we're in, you, know you you took your child? Yeah, I mean, you know, they, it, it was fine. There, there, was, you know, there was no, no sense of, of danger here at all. But there was this, this idea of that's not where you take a child.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And you know, my kid, my kid had a great time, and the the refugees that that he played with, uh, you know, in the grass there in front of the jail as we waited to make sure everyone was processed to take them to the airport uh, was it, it was it was a you know I think that evening was a life changing experience for me mm-hmm. in in saying like okay you can both be a parent. And still engage with the world. It makes it more difficult, for sure.
1: Um,
0: I know I had a a lot of my single friends or friends without children uh, were very involved in protests uh, this past month. And, and, you know, my wife and I, not so much. Uh, And that was more because... I, I will take my kids to hang out with refugees because I trust them. I will not take my kid to go hang out where there might be a violent police presence because I don't trust that. Um, right. in In just for myself, trying to to find that balance of both, I want to take care of my children to make the next generation better. But if I only do that and I don't take care of other people and other people's children, then I'm only making the world better for myself. And that's not – that's 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 so anti-gospel. That's so anti-Christian. Right. Yeah. So I, I feel like we could just like talk forever on this and just sort of – I don't know that we're getting anywhere, but we can just commiserate, you know? Um, yeah. There's this idea of like we have so far to go – and I just hope that if people read this book, it'll ignite something in them to say, I need to be, I need to be a part of this. Um, I need to, to engage in this. One of the things that's been super difficult, I think, over the past couple of months is burnout. Um, mm-hmm. You wake up and there are 20 things that you could devote your attention to or devote your platform to or your voice to in each of them they're all interconnected they're all interrelated they're all super important and especially as white people i i have the privilege of being able to step away if i want mm-hmm. you know i i don't have to always advocate on behalf of the poor because i'm not poor i don't always have to advocate on behalf of uh, racial minorities because i'm not a racial minority so I have the privilege of being able to step back. How do you how do you avoid burnout, and is it okay to step back sometimes?
1: Yeah, I think I I was getting really good at like avoiding burnout in my normal pre-COVID nineteen <laughs> life, and so now I'm feeling a little like I want to throw a hissy fit because I'm not good at avoiding burnout in this pandemic life. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, But I will say, you know, of course it's okay to step back. Like, we have to prioritize mental health. This is an absolutely unprecedented moment. Now, there's different ways of uh, stepping back, right? There's one of, like, I just want to pretend like this doesn't exist. Um, And there's a way of stepping back to say, like, you know what? I want to be in this for the rest of my life, and I need to build some resiliency, right? And I don't Mm -hmm. think white people have a ton of resiliency, (laughs) right, when it comes to... Engaging in systemic uh, unjust frameworks. So I think building resiliency is great. You know, all of us probably need to pay attention. Like, are we numbing out or are we actually engaging in, like, restorative practices that will build resiliency? I I would say, like, for me, probably the biggest thing, and it's so hard because we're so isolated because of this, it's it's truly a perfect storm, right? Mm -hmm. right? But I would say the most positive way I've been able to reframe it is, for one, I don't think we're going to go back to business as usual, which is good. Business as usual sucked for a lot of people. So I think we could be excited that things are changing. We're seeing some real cultural shifts happening in front of our eyes. And then as a Christian, I can just say, you know what? I'm angry and I'm sad and I hate all that's going on that's so wrong in the world because I am one of God's children and God's dream for the world is for everyone to flourish. Every single person. And this dream is not something I made up. It's not something that is pie in the sky. It's actually comes from God. And I get to be this tiny little part of dreaming up, you know, God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is incredible. It's incredible for everybody. And so, I can really, you know, as much as I am really sad and disappointed with a lot that was given to me through my cultural Christianity, it's been really great to sort of reclaim this tenant, core, these you know, core tenants of a global historic Christianity, which is God's obsessed with our neighbors, <laughs> you know, yeah. God's obsessed yeah. with our neighbors flourishing, and uh, I get to be a part of that, and that's that's really exciting, and that's and that's something I want to do my whole life. And so I'm going to try and approach that with joy while I can. And so so for me, I do need that reframing. Even getting the chance to talk to you is really helpful for me because, um, yeah, I, of course I can get stuck on my phone and, and doom scrolling and looking at all the bad things. But, you know, we can connect with other people and say we're not the only ones who are thinking these things through and who feel this desire for a better world, you know, than the one we currently have. And uh, yeah, we can encourage each other in that mm-hmm.
0: so this question has been one that's been on my mind the past few weeks is there is there ever a point I, I I honestly, truly do not know the answer to this is there is there ever a point where you would just say i I, I wash my hands of this um I am not I give up on the United States." I mean, all nations have their issues, but I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go somewhere else. Is there ever a point that you would do that?
1: Oh my gosh, how honest <laughs> am I be about this question? Um, I think about that a lot uh, mm-hmm. for a few reasons, and I would say the biggest reason for me is that I have, you know, spent my life working with recently arrived refugees, and mm-hmm. I have to be honest and say, you know that's over <laughs> at this yeah. point. And so um, I really have to sort of wrestle between like two different vocations. So I do some writing, you know, and like speaking and, and, and stuff to white evangelical Americans. And so obviously I still think that's sort of an important thing, but it's just one part of my life. And, and so the other part of my life, teaching English, building communities, is sort of like that's over. At what point do you say, like, if I truly want to learn how to be hospitable and welcoming to people who've experienced forced migration, then the United States is, is actually not a place where I can do that work anymore? Um, so, yes, of course, I have Googled what it's like to move to New Zealand because, <laughs> you know, per capita, mm-hmm. welcome mm-hmm. way more refugees. has zero cases of COVID-19. Our friends who live there, their kids are already back at school. Yeah. So I've done that. I'm not making any decisions now, but it's so sobering to realize my way of life and my way of trying to live out part of my vocation as a Christian and just as a neighbor is over. And I'm yeah. still grappling with that.
0: Yeah. It, it's so hard because I, I've kind of felt that I I've, I've felt exactly the same way. And again New Zealand you're at the top of my list so we're we're uh-huh. coming for you although uh-huh. right now right now I understand you're not letting any Americans anywhere in your country Exactly. Um, we we're, we're sorry. um we <laughs> we're trying uh not all of us but a few of us Yeah, I was like we're going to trying. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, but I have I've really felt the same way in that we're is there a point, at, you know, is there a point at which you're like, the system is too broken, the best way to fix it is to start over somewhere else? And I I honestly, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know. You know, when I, when I think about where I want my kids to grow up, and I, and I guess that is sort of an, an element of safety that I still harbor. Um, you know, I, I have two adopted children who are racial minorities. Uh, do I want them to live in this America? Do I want them to have to go through the things that I have seen people of their race go through? If I can, if I can preach the gospel and have the same impact, in a country where they're going to be more accepted. That's, that, You know, it, it's, it's, I guess it's kind of utilitarian, but it's like, where can I do the most work? Am I called to the United States? And and I, I don't know anymore. I just, I, I don't know. And um, I don't, I don't know where I'll end up on that in my life.
1: I mean, we're on the same boat. I think all we can do right now is sort of lean into the fact <clears throat> Of lamenting, you know, mm-hmm. how broken our country is in our states, in our cities, and we can't fix it. <laughs> and we can't even move away right now because of how things yeah. are. So, all we can do is sort of sit and lament, right, this reality. Um, yeah. And I think that will continue to shape us, you know, no matter, yeah, obviously only privileged people can make those decisions about what they're going to do next, but for now, we can all just say like, this yeah <laughs> you know oh.
2: yeah.
0: so let's 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 try to pivot a little bit and let's end on a positive note um this is ho- like i, I want to point this out for those of you who are listening this is hard work and we cannot look away from it simply because it is hard or because it is difficult, because it makes us uncomfortable. These things are supposed to make us uncomfortable. And when we look at that and we see, why does this make us uncomfortable? It's not until we feel uncomfortable that we're going to fix anything. And and fortunately, that's the case. Uh, That's the way the American psyche is sort of set up, is that when we ourselves are personally affected by it, then we will feel a greater inclination to be a part of the solution it's so easy Mm -hmm. to look away when it doesn't affect us and the hope is that we don't want to we don't want you to come away from this you know i'm not saying read this book to feel sad or listen to this podcast and feel sad uh we want you to feel energized from this because we need more people in this fight because Uh, There's going to be times that burn out. There's going to be times that people have to step away. But if I can step away for a day and five people take my place, then that's when we're really going to affect lasting change. And um, hopefully, I I, I, I don't want to give up. I don't want to give up on this country. Um, This country has provided a lot for me despite its flaws, uh, despite its historic injustices and i think that we can i think that we can fight to to make it better i think we can fight so that the ideals of this nation that we are all equal uh undergone can actually be realized but it's going to take the church being the church and it's going to take some deeply deeply sacrificial changes not just to us as individuals but to us as as societies uh, so just let's let's sort of end on I, I hope a positive note, and I I, I want to ask is what, and you may not know because of everything that's uncertain in the world today, but what what do you have upcoming? Do you have any plans for any future writing?
1: Oh, I do, but it's 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 a hard thing for me, you know, staring down the barrel of. My kids not going to school, and it was going to be my first year with both of my kids in school, and I was really excited mm-hmm. about writing a, another book. But uh,
0: <laughs> it's it's hard to write with kids, I know.
1: <laughs> no, no, I mean I've done it. But, but yeah, with kids like during a pandemic where we can't do anything else, you know. So yeah, yeah, so I, I don't really know what's what's coming. I, I will say, you know, I have had this practice of you know, I'm pretty good at, like, despairing about the state of the world, but when I look at all my heroes, you know, heroes of the faith or whatever, like, they're also really good at um, being on the lookout for God's presence and joy in their lives, and so that's something I need to continually remind myself is that there is joy in this life and there's joy in this work, um, but if you kind of numb yourself to the bad news, you're probably going to numb yourself to to the joy of God's presence um, at work, too, so... Just, you know, taking a moment to say, I want, I want it all. I want to experience the good and the bad, um, the delight and the despair. And so that's kind of how I'm going to keep telling myself to move forward. There's going to be some good things coming in all of this, too.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I'll, I'll close with, with this quote, and, I'll, and then I'll let you comment on it. Uh, very near the end of the book, in the epilogue, uh, you, you quote uh, Walter Brueggemann, uh, who writes that poets have no advice to give people. They only want people to see differently, to revision life. They are not coercive. They only try to stimulate, hint, give nuance, not more. They cannot do more because they are making available a world that does not yet exist beyond their imagination. What does that quote mean to you?
1: Yeah, I think I, coming from somebody who wanted to be a missionary, I just like, I really have this impulse to just want to convert everybody to be like me, think like me, you know, <laughs> live their life like me. And instead, really being called to this larger thing, which is, you know, what Walter Brueggemann would call the prophetic imagination. How do I mm-hmm. start to cultivate an imagination that is not influenced by pharaoh or empire or the United States or the mythic Messengers, How can I start to cultivate this holy imagination? Um, and that's what I want. I, I love how, you know, the Hebrew word for prophet means to bubble up. Like prophets are just people who help what's been hidden under the surface and bubble up to the top and so um I guess we're kind of closing out this interview with how we started which is you know the myth is being laid bare for for everyone right now how can we a part be a part of keeping that to keep bubbling that up and to keep saying is there another way we can live our life and as someone who loves creative writing you know I would encourage people listening to this to just try and pay attention you know If there's images in the news, if there's something that stands out to you, it really takes a moment to think about it. You know, I have friends who have, like, painted pictures of the Statue of Liberty and, you know, the words on the Statue of Liberty, right? Give us your tired and poor and huddled masses and and really use that experience of painting the Statue of Liberty, which is sort of like, you know, none of that's happening right now. But, you know, engaging in 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 an artistic way of, like, lamenting that or, you know, looking at a picture of police in their full riot gear you know and just taking a moment to say like this is where my tax dollars go you know is to provide weapons of militarization to people you know just really taking some time to think about our imagination how they're shaped and to let it keep bubbling up even if we just kind of want to go and bury our heads in the sand